Welcome to the audio version of Faith Magazine. This is Katie Hamel, the creative editor. I hope you enjoy listening to these inspiring stories from around our diocese. If you'd like to read the stories online, please visit salinadiocese.org. Chapter 6, When My Heart Leapt for Joy My initial conversion to Christ happened my sophomore year. My parents were recently divorced, and I felt lost spiritually and emotionally. The pastor for the Methodist youth group invited me on a mission trip. The last night of the trip was my first encounter with Jesus. I told him that it was the first experience I had ever had of him, and I wanted to experience him every day for the rest of my life. I got home, and I started going to Sunday service regularly. I started a Bible study, led a youth group, and joined the choir. I even gave sermons on Sundays when the pastor was gone. But a key thing to note is that I had always been taught to be very anti-Catholic. So as my love for Christ grew, so did my anti-Catholic sentiments. I would go to school arguing and challenging my Catholic peers. I believed my purpose was to save the Catholics from hell. But in September 2017, a schism occurred in the Methodist Church, and it greatly affected me. I began looking for a new faith. Obviously, Catholicism was off the board, but I gave everything else a try. And at that time, one of my Catholic peers boldly invited me to Mass. It was October 2017. I told him no way. And he said, if you're so confident that Catholics are wrong, what do you have to fear? I figured he was right. Maybe if I went, I could learn how to fight Catholics. I agreed, and I took my notebook and pen so I could write down everything the Catholics did wrong. I counted the number of statues they had and the number of times the priest said Mary's name. The beginning of Mass was what I had expected, but then it was time for the consecration. And as anti-Catholic as I was, I had never even heard of the Eucharist. The priest started moving around the altar. I had never seen that before because Methodists don't have altars. What was he doing? I focused in, drawn to what he was saying, and the bells rang and I just kept intently watching. The priest bent over, and I thought it was bizarre. What was he doing? What was he bowing to? And then he raised the host. Time stopped. I can't even explain it. I gazed at the Eucharist forever. What was it? It caused me to be shocked and numb, and I didn't know what it was. I was so confused. What was this thing? My confusion turned to anger. I had gone to Catholic Mass, ready to fight the Catholics, and instead, something else had happened. The following days, I was diving into scripture, trying to find arguments against Catholicism. A week after my first mass, I woke up in a cold sweat, completely terrified. I had a dream of the Eucharist being held directly in front of my face. I thought Satan was trying to reel me in. The dream persisted, and I went to scripture. I opened my Bible, and I came across John 6, the chapter on the Eucharist. I swear that I have no recollection of ever reading John 6 until that moment. I went to my pastor and told him I was confused about the Eucharist. He mocked Catholics. We called them cannibals because they were eating Jesus. I left the meeting and decided to start looking into early Christian history to bolster my weapons against the faith. That was a mistake. I learned about the Eucharist, Mary, and church hierarchy. It was overwhelmingly Catholic and it terrified me. I put it aside. I'm a Protestant, I thought. I believe in scripture alone. The Catholic Church probably rewrote history to suit their own story, but I sank into desolation. 
I was questioning everything I once thought to be true. That same friend came back and invited me to go to Mass, and I shamefully agreed. We went to Mass on the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. The Mass was all about Mary. She was adorned with flowers, and they called her the Queen of Heaven. I left Mass numb. Again, I went to my pastor, and he told me, Mary is the most insignificant and irrelevant figure in Christian history. She is a distraction from God. I was enraged when he said that, which was weird, because a month ago, I would have said those same words. At this time, I had fallen away from Protestantism. I was in limbo. I sat back and waited for the next thing. And that same friend came back and invited me to go to a talk about Mary. I learned a lot about Mary, and I talked to the speaker for 20 minutes following the session, asking her questions. But when I left, this girl was standing outside the door waiting for me. She was my arch nemesis, the one strongest in her Catholic faith that I argued with constantly. She pointed at a door which led to the Adoration Chapel. She said, Jesus is in that room. I scoffed at her, asking her if it was the second coming, and Jesus picked Kingman, Kansas. And she said, no, he's there. He's physically in that room. I opened my mouth to say something smart, and then I closed it, because I finally realized that Catholics believe the Eucharist is the flesh of Christ. I was baffled. Later, someone approached me and suggested I give Eucharistic adoration a try. I remember walking to the chapel. I remember how I froze with my hand over the doorknob. I don't know how long I stood there, and my hand began to shake as I mustered the courage and opened the door, wondering if all the answers were just beyond. I stepped in, and I saw the Eucharist. Immediately, warmth washed over my entire body, and I knew with certainty it was real. It was Jesus, and he was calling me to his church. That summer, I spent so much time in adoration. I delved into history, theology, philosophy, and apologetics. I fell in love. Everything I read was rooted in truth. It had wind at its back. I approached the Catholic priest and told him I was interested in becoming Catholic. Since it was nearly Easter, he encouraged me to wait until the next RCIA season and enter the church my freshman year at Kansas State University. I got to the KSU, and I remember I walked up to Father Gail Hammerschmidt. The first thing I said to him was, my name is Ridge, and I want to become a Catholic, and I want to be a priest. He set me up with the RCIA coordinator, and things flowed from there. Everything was great, up until Holy Week. During Holy Week, I was faced with intense desolation. It was true spiritual warfare. I struggled with fear and the lies of Satan. I was scared to be alone. Good Friday and Holy Saturday were terrible. I was on the brink of turning away from the faith. But I stood fast. And when I walked into the church at the beginning of the Easter Vigil, Truth washed over me, and Satan's lies were dispelled. Mass began. I received the sacrament of confirmation. As Father Hammerschmidt said, John Vianney, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and anointed me. I knew I had made it, but the greater good was yet to come. The Eucharist. I had been craving the Eucharist for months. My heart was about to pop out of my chest as I approached. Tears were streaming down my face as I sobbed. I opened my mouth and felt the Eucharist on my tongue. It tasted so sweet. I felt the presence of the saints and my brothers and sisters at my back. It was true communion. I did it. I was home. I had everything I had been searching for. Christ and the Catholic community 
welcomed me with open arms. And ever since that moment, I have committed my life to serving Christ and his Eucharistic heart. Chapter seven, searching to be known. I'm from Protection, Kansas. It's a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. The Catholic church in the county is a house and there are only about 10 Catholic families in the entire county. I grew up Methodist, so Catholicism just wasn't something I was exposed to. Freshman year of high school, I lost most of my friends. I was lonely, but I had the desire to be seen and known. So that desire manifested itself in ways it shouldn't have. Every decision I made was rooted in, will this get me more friends? Will this make them like me? The summer after senior year, I was a counselor at church camp where the theme was known. And finally, I was struck by the reality that the thing I had been grasping at my whole life to be known was fulfilled in Jesus. It is he who knows me. In that moment, I resolved to be different. At camp in the chapel one night, I knew I was seen and known, and my old life went out the door. When I first arrived at college, I got really involved in a non-denominational campus ministry, and I grew so much in friendship with Jesus. I developed a prayer life, and things were going well. Then, in November, I stumbled into friendship with a woman named Bridget May, a devoted Catholic. All I knew about her was that she was Catholic, and all I thought I knew about Catholics was that they were Mary worshipers who have no relationship with Jesus. I thought Bridget clearly had no idea who Jesus was, so I made a point to listen to Christian music with her. It blew me away when she knew the words to the songs. Christmas break came and Bridget and I kept in contact. Our quick conversations turned into long debates about theology. I began combing through my Bible, watching YouTube videos, and reading Catholic articles. As a Protestant, I believe scripture was the sole authority. But we ran into the issue where we were both using scripture to argue, except we didn't have the same arguments. And that didn't make sense. I thought, we serve a God who loves us enough to give us one way to interpret scripture. The most unloving thing he could do would be to give us a love letter and then not give us the means to understand it. That stirred in my heart for a while. Bridget and I debated Mary, the saints, the Eucharist, confession, the papacy, and many other topics. She was kind of making sense, but I wanted to be right. Until finally, we got to a point where she said if I could disprove three things, I would win the debates. Her list was the Eucharist, church authority, and apostolic succession. Game on. A few days later, she sent me a video on Francis Chan, a former megachurch pastor who's highly respected in Protestant circles. In this video, he talked about how for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, everyone believed in the Eucharist. And I realized that history was not on my side, and maybe that meant something. When we got back to Manhattan, Bridget asked me to go to Mass with her. I said yes, but only if she went to church with me. Bridget prepared me for everything that was about to happen. She told me about the kneeling, genuflecting, gestures, and prayers. And when we got there, I sat and took things in, and then I started journaling. I wasn't paying attention, but something in me shifted. I wasn't critiquing the Mass like I thought I would. I was praying and resting. I was given the grace to simply be and meet the Father. When Bridget drove me home, I didn't speak. 
After what felt like the longest car ride ever, she pulled up to the dorms, and I just started weeping. I told her, Bridget, that was the most sacred, beautiful, and familiar thing I have ever witnessed in my life, and I kept begging her to take me back. Something was drawing me in. I didn't know what, but I knew it was sacred. My biggest fear in all of this was that I was going to lose people. It was going to be high school all over again. I would be isolated if I pursued this, but I kept going. Then Bridget introduced me to the Perpetual Adoration Chapel. I sat in front of the Eucharist, and the cry of my heart was, Jesus, you are worth everything. I will give up everything, but you need to show me that this is real. Days later, I was reading what I wrote, and the last line said, Allison, I see you. Keep coming. And it's crazy, but I don't remember writing those words. I started showing up to adoration every chance I could. I started going to Mass regularly. The Lord kept revealing himself to me in the Eucharist and in the Mass, and I knew that this is the way we were created to worship. We were made for this. This union, this intimacy, to be seen and known in this way, it was everything I had ever desired, and it was fulfilled in the Eucharist, and I didn't want to wait. One day after Mass, I marched up to Father Drew Hoffman, and I said, I want the Eucharist, and I don't want to wait until next Easter. Can we just go for it? And Father Drew said, let's do it. Then came the agonizing period of waiting. At every Mass, I walked up to the Eucharist and had to turn around empty-handed. I fell more in love with Jesus, though. He was no longer an abstract figure who knew me from a distance. He was a person who loved me enough to leave heaven because he wanted to be with me. I desired to know him the way he desired to know me. I wanted intimacy with Jesus. COVID hit and the agonizing wait continued. Until finally, we set a date for September 19th, 2020. I was so full of excitement. It felt like a wedding day. I remember everything so vividly. And I didn't think many people would come, but friends came from all over the Midwest. It was so humbling. When Father Gail Hammerschmidt consecrated the host, I started crying. Jesus was right there. And I knew that when I walked down the aisle, I wouldn't have to walk back empty-handed. I prayed throughout Mass that even if I didn't receive consolation, I would still be convicted. My earthly experience would not change the heavenly reality. And then I walked up. To this day, it was the best moment of my entire life. It was the closest to touching heaven I have ever been. The moment I received, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't stop shaking and weeping. The thing I had grasped at for so long, to be seen and known, was fulfilled in that moment. Jesus fulfilled everything I had ever wanted. I was seen, I was known, and I was loved. Thanks for listening to From the Heart. Please subscribe and remember to tune in next time where you'll hear more stories across the Diocese of Salina.